0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians. Let's return there, if you will, to chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1. We have focused for the last several Sundays on this prayer that the Apostle Paul has prayed for the Philippian Christians, and we'll take a look at it again this morning. Philippians chapter 1. We're focusing our attention on verses 9, 10, and 11. The Apostle Paul writes, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory, and to the praise of God. This is the Word of God, and we pray His blessing upon the reading and the study of His Word this morning. Now, as we stated at the very beginning of our focus on this prayer, that there is a natural progression in this prayer through seven principles that lead us to spiritual Maturity, a natural progression through seven principles mentioned in this prayer that lead us to spiritual maturity. Each one mentioned is foundational to the next one mentioned, and each one mentioned is an extension of the previous one. That is mentioned. So we are going step by step, higher and higher and higher, from the ground floor of spiritual uh, life into successive levels of growth into spiritual maturity. The first principle is love, the Apostle Paul mentions here. It is the love that we have for God. It is the love that we have for the things of God. It is the love that we have for each other as Christian brothers and sisters. It is the love that we have for others. Spiritual growth begins with a growing, overflowing, abundant love for God and for the things of God. Now this love that he mentions here in verse uh, nine, and this I pray that your love may abound. This love here is rooted in God himself. We're not talking about a superficial human emotional love we're talking about a godly love that is rooted within God himself. Now there is emotion to this love, but the main principle of God's love is his commitment and his desire to meet the needs in each and every child of his kingdom. Just like agape love here in in uh, our fellowship, in other fellowships all across the Central Valley and uh, uh, throughout California and across the nation and the world. Those who experience and express godly love do not do so because of some warm fuzzies that they have going on in their, uh, you know, butterflies in the stomach or in the chest. No. Godly love says, I see a need in your life, a spiritual need, a physical need, a moral need. A a family need, a personal need, a vocational need, an economic need in your life. And God's love in me compels me to reach out and to minister to that need in your life. That's godly love. That's the love that God has demonstrated toward us. That's his love toward us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is Love. Love is not just an attribute of God. Love is a very vital part of God's nature. It is a part of his essence. It is a part of who he is as God. And so the love that we are to have, this abounding love that the Apostle Paul prayed for, for the Philippians, and the kind of love that we're supposed to have for each other, is an ever-increasing love for each other, for God, and for uh, the lost people of our world rooted in God himself. Now, if you are a Christian, you know that God loves you. God loves you. You wouldn't be saved if God didn't love you. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That is salvation. We might live through Him, through Jesus Christ. In this love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. In other words, love is never static. Love is always active. You get that? It's one thing to tell a person that you love that person. It's quite another thing to demonstrate that love for that person. Amen? And God sets the example for you and for me. God doesn't just tell us that he loves us by writing it in the sky or having some apostle print it in the book. God has demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died. His son, Jesus Christ, died for us on the cross. And so now, because we understand the love of God and we realize that God loves us, we must also love one another. John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35 Jesus says to his disciples a new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And in John chapter 15 verse 12 Jesus said this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Well, in fact, my friends, we cannot love each other unless the love of God resides within us. It is impossible for us to love each other the way God wants us to love each other, the way Jesus commands us to love each other, unless the love of God is dwelling in each and every one of us. In 1 John chapter four nineteen, the apostle John writes, we love because he first loved us. So this first principle of spiritual growth is to recognize, to acknowledge, and to appropriate into our lives this great, this marvelous, wonderful love of God. And from this overflowing love for God and for others comes knowledge and discernment. In verse 9, notice what he says, and this, I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. This overflowing love then produces within us a hunger and a thirsting for real knowledge and all discernment. Now the word real, as we've already discussed, means the full knowledge, not only of God, but the word of God, the will of God, the ways of God, so on and so forth. A full, a more complete knowledge of God. Discernment is the understanding that comes to us when we appropriate that knowledge in our lives, when we apply that knowledge in our lives. When we love the Lord God, He opens up our eyes to understanding, to things that that were beyond us before, things that we could have never understood uh, without Him Revealing those things to us. But that knowledge alone does not uh, afford us anything until we apply that knowledge into our lives. Now, we call that wisdom. But here the Apostle Paul calls that discernment. It's the understanding that comes to us. You can have knowledge and not have understanding, right? You can know certain facts but not understand what those facts are really all about. So this knowledge gives us discernment, wisdom, understanding when we apply that knowledge into our lives. Now from this overflowing love of God and the things of God, the knowledge and the application of God's truth into our lives, we will be able to test or to prove what is excellent. That's what the apostle says here in verse 9. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent so that you can approve the things that are excellent. You'll be able to discern. You'll be able to engage. You'll be able to experience God's best in your life. You won't settle for what is just good. You won't won't even settle for what is even better. You will desire to press on to what is excellent in the kingdom of God that you can place into your life. Christians, true Christians, who are in growth mode, who are in the, um, the, um, on the pathway to spiritual growth and development, do not settle for uh, just this, that, or the other. They want to press on to what is the best that God has to offer for them. And that's, again, what the Apostle Paul outlines here. And when we experience this, when we have this involved in our lives, then he goes on to say that this will lead us to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. We'll not talk about the day of Christ today. We'll save that for another Sunday. But I want you to know the progression of uh, of. Uh, that the Apostle Paul uses here in this prayer, the progression that leads to spiritual maturity. And the sad thing about it, dear friends, for a lot of Christians, I don't say most Christians, but for a lot of Christians, they never press on to spiritual maturity. They're like the Christians in Corinth that were continually feeding on spiritual milk but never progressing on to spiritual meat. They remain spiritual infants but they never Developed into spiritually mature adults. Notice the progression here. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. Love leading to knowledge and discernment, so that the next level you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Step by step by step, level by level by level, always improving, always marching upward toward spiritual maturity. Paul sums it up this way in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 when he said, For those whom he, that is the Lord God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of, Of his son. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Listen, the goal of being a Christian, the goal of being saved, is not to go to heaven. That is not the goal. That's the gravy, that's the fringe benefit. It's not the meat and taters. Okay, the goal of being a... If, if God wanted... If, if all salvation is about going to heaven, the moment you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you'd be gone. There'd be no need for you to be here on the earth any longer if the goal of being saved was to go to heaven. But God has left us here for a reason. There is a purpose why we as Christians remain in the earth. And the goal of our being here as Christians is to experience the gradual change that comes in spiritual maturity that brings us to the image, the likeness of Jesus Christ as sons and daughters of God. In other words, dear friends, as you look back over your life You need to ask yourself as you examine your days and weeks and months and years, am I more like Jesus today than I was yesterday? Am I more like Christ today than I was last year? Am I more like Christ today than I was 10 years ago or when I was first saved? And I'm not talking about the image of Christ by wearing a long robe and sandals and wearing my hair long and growing a beard. That's not the image image of Christ. The image of Christ is the character and the nature and the conduct that Jesus was involved in while he was here on the earth. His love for the Father, his love for the lost, his love for the hurting, his willingness uh, to reach out and to touch people with the love of God, his compassion toward those who were dying in sin, his purity of life, Loving God so much that he was unwilling to yield to temptation and to sin. His conversation with people, always uplifting, always directing their attention toward the kingdom of God. That is the image of Christ that we are to be conformed to. That is what salvation is really all about in your life and in my life. And that can only come when we take those appropriate steps that bring on spiritual maturity in our lives. We're not there yet, and we will never arrive in this life. But we are moving ever upward each and every day that we live for Jesus Christ. Now this morning... Uh, I want to focus our attention on the principle of sincerity and blamelessness. Two principles uh, that are uh, tied together. They're twins. They're two sides of the same coin. So I want to deal with them together this morning. First of all, sincerity, and then blamelessness. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. Now, what does that mean? To be sincere and to be blameless. First of all, I want you to note that sincerity has to do with what you are personally. It has to do with what you are personally. Blamelessness has to do with what you are to others. That's why there are two sides of the same coin. Both of these together, when you look at both of these together, you combine both of these together, it spells personal spiritual integrity. You know what integrity is? We don't have a whole lot of that going around nowadays especially inside the beltway. But integrity, integrity. Webster defines integrity as faithfulness to a set standard, a set standard, not fluctuating, not fluid, but a set standard of moral and ethical principles being sound, being strong, being stable in one's moral character. That's how Webster defines integrity. Faithfulness to a set standard of moral and ethical principles. Being sound, strong, and stable in one's moral character. For the Christian, that standard is set by Jesus Christ in Scripture. We do not embrace the morals nor do we embrace the principles of the world which is lost in sin and spiraling downward into self-degradation and self-destruction. The standards that we are to live by are the standards that Jesus Christ has set in Scripture. So integrity for the Christian is to live by a set standard set by Jesus Christ himself, a set standard of moral and ethical principles. Now, that's integrity. And I would ask you this morning, if, if you're a Christian, uh, are you uh, a Christian that has integrity? Are you a Christian who, is in, who has integrity in your life this morning? The word sincere, let's take a look at the word sincere. The word sincere means to be genuine. To be genuine. You've heard the expression, the real McCoy. Back home in Arkansas, we used to say, all wool and a yard long. The real deal. The genuine article. That's what sincerity means. It means to be genuine. On the ancient threshing floors... The farmer sifted his grain by gently rolling the wheat and then tossing it in the air to separate the kernels of wheat from the chaff or from the husks, resulting in pure wheat. We're all familiar with cotton pickers. Central Valley have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of cotton fields. Today's farmer takes his cotton to a gin. Not what's in a bottle, but a building that's got machinery in it. He takes his cotton to a gin so that the cotton fiber can be separated from the seeds and from the debris that was collected during the harvest, resulting in pure cotton gold ore, is put into a furnace and heated up red hot so that the impurities in that ore are melted off and pure gold can be produced. That's the idea behind the word sincere. It is to be made pure or free from impurity, from defilement from corruption we would say today it is to be free from sin to be sincere is to be free from sin christians are to have personal spiritual integrity a faithfulness to the standards that jesus christ himself has set the standards of holiness in character and righteousness in conduct That he not only established, but that he also exemplified in his own life. Now you may very well say, well, that's an impossible thing. It's impossible for any individual, especially a Christian, to live without sin. And I would agree with you. But you ought to give it a try, dear friends. We ought not to settle... For sin in our lives, we ought to continue to press on in spiritual maturity so that we sin less and less and less and we become more and more and more like Jesus. I know Christians who don't care about the sin in their lives and that's a tragic thing because they do not understand, they do not realize what they're doing to their spiritual reputation. They do not know what they're doing, the effect that they're having on their non-Christian friends and family members. For a Christian to live like the world is doing irreparable damage to those who see that individual as a Christian. And I've known people who've said, well, if that individual is a Christian, I don't need to be one because he's no better than I am. If that's what it means to be a Christian, I'd just as soon pass. That's a tragic testimony to have. That's a tragic thing to have said about you as a Christian. We need to be concerned about sin in our lives. I know that I sin from time to time in my mind, in my spirit, and in the flesh. I know that. I acknowledge that. I'm not above sin. But dearly beloved, I am working and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in my life so that my sins are decreasing and my faith and my obedience to Christ is increasing. And that should be the goal of every Christian individual who truly desires spiritual maturity. Growing in spiritual maturity. When you when you get serious about growing in spiritual maturity, God will show through his holy spirit the flaws and the impurities and the imperfections Of your life. And that's painful. I don't like it. But it's necessary. It is painful, but it is necessary. God, in his great love for us, speaks to the sins in our lives. Our weaknesses, our flaws in character. Not to shame us. And not to condemn us. But to cleanse and to purify us, to make us complete, to make us whole and spiritually mature. Because when His Holy Spirit points these things out, it is that same Holy Spirit that brings conviction into our lives, that drives us to the cross, that we will confess our sins and repent of those sins and those weaknesses. And to receive once again the cleansing power of Christ who is able to forgive and restore us to spiritual faith and to righteousness and to integrity. People don't want to talk about sin today. In some places, in some churches, and in some circles of Christian people, you'll never hear the word sin mentioned. But beloved, if we don't acknowledge the reality of our sinfulness, then we will not confess that. We will not repent of that. And if we do not repent of sin, we can never be saved. So even though we don't like to hear about sin, we need to acknowledge it and we need to deal with it as the Holy Spirit of God moves in us to do so. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there with just sincerity. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. He doesn't stop with sincerity. He moves on to the twin sister of blamelessness. Sincerity speaks of personal spiritual integrity. Blamelessness speaks of spiritual integrity with others. Spiritual integrity with others. The word blameless means void of offense. Void of offense. It means not causing others to stumble. Not causing others to stumble. It is to keep our lives from being a hindrance to other people in their spiritual growth and maturity. If you are blameless, that means you are not allowing your life to be a hindrance to some other individual in their spiritual growth and development. Scripture tells us that Jesus was a stumbling block in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, and Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. Scripture also tells us that Jesus was a rock of offense. Romans chapter 9, verse 33, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. But he was those things to those who refused to believe in him as Lord and Savior. We are not to be those things to those who are striving to grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are not to be a stumbling block. We are not to be a hindrance. We are not to be a rock of offense to those who are sincerely trying to be like Jesus in this life. But it's sad to say, dear friends, that in many churches there are individuals in fellowships all across this valley and across the state and the country where people believe that it is a spiritual gift of the Holy Spirit to be a rock of offense to others. But it's not. The Holy Spirit is about unity. The Holy Spirit is about obedience to the, the, to the will and to the word of God. The Holy Spirit is about bringing people together in the love of Jesus Christ so that we can love one another, we can serve one another, we can minister with each other the kingdom of Christ to a lost and dying world. If we become contentious, if we become a rock of offense, if we become a stumbling block to others, especially in the fellowship, then the kingdom of God in that particular place is fragmented. The kingdom of God is weakened. The kingdom of God is compromised. Now the Bible tells us that Christians are not to be a stumbling block to others. Romans chapter 14 verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in a brother's way. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours, this freedom that you have in Jesus Christ, this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23, Jesus said to the apostle Peter, let me give you a little background here. Jesus and the disciples were in and around Caesarea Philippi and they were on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus had already determined, had set his face toward Jerusalem to go and to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. On the way, as the disciples were walking down the road, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Let's have a gut check here, guys. You know, what, what, do, what are people saying about me? Is the message getting out? Are people understanding who I am and what I'm all about? And the disciples, you know, they responded, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say that you're one of the great prophets like Elijah. Some say this, some say that. And then Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? When the rubber hits the road, fellas, when we get down to brass tacks, who do you believe me to be? Peter steps up to the plate, as Peter was always prone to step up to the plate. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father has revealed this to you. And I say, blessed are you, Peter, for upon the rock, that is, upon the solid confession of your belief in who I am, I will build my church. Not a day later. Jesus tells the disciples, in more detail, that he is going to Jerusalem. He's going to turn himself over to the elders of Israel. They will try him. They will condemn him. And they will put him on the cross. And again, Peter steps up to the plate. And he says, I ain't never going to let that happen. That ain't ever going to happen. I forbid that to happen. And, and I, I'm going I'm, I'm to prevent that from happening. And Jesus said to him, Matthew sixteen twenty three, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Point here, Christians are a stumbling block to others when their lives focus on the things of the world, on the things of men, and not on the things of God. Peter was saying, I'm not going to let you die. I love you. You're my leader. You're our Messiah. And I'm not going to let you die. And Jesus was saying, you are a stumbling block to the will of God. You are trying to prevent what God has ordained in eternity past. And you're doing it not because of your spiritual maturity and your desire to see the will of God performed. You're doing it because of your own fleshly desires. You're looking upon it as a man looks upon it, not as God wills it. And dearly beloved, as Christians, we can fall into that same trap of the Apostle Peter. We will say, Lord God, I don't want to do what you want me to do today. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm weary, I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, I don't have the effort, I really don't have the desire. You become a stumbling block to the will of God when you stand in God's way. But you also become a stumbling block to your Christian brothers and sisters when you will not permit them to follow God's will in their life. You become a stumbling block to that brother or sister who desires to follow the Lord, who wants to serve the Lord, who wants to get involved in the work of the Lord. And you say, no, ain't got no room for you. Nope, ain't got no time for you. Nope. You know, sit a while longer. You know, you got to learn this a little bit better. you got to go that a little bit. you got to get some more experience. How am I going to get any experience if you don't let me serve? We become a stumbling block to other individuals when we are focused more on the things of men, the things of the flesh, the things of the world, and not on the things of God. Another example to the church in Pergamum, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, I have a few things against you, Jesus said. Because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is the point? The point here is that Christians can become a stumbling block When they turn others away from Jesus Christ by their preaching and their teaching and their mentoring. What? Christians involved in turning people away from Jesus Christ? Oh, I've seen it done many, many times. I've seen it done many, many times. It is an offense. It is a stumbling block to others. Now listen. I'm going to talk a little bit about theological stuff and then I'm going to talk about some practical stuff. It is an offense and a stumbling block to others when a professed Christian contends that Jesus did not rise from the dead three days after his, his crucifixion even though the Bible clearly teaches that he did. And you say, well, Christians don't... They're not... Real Christians don't believe in the resurrection? Yeah... When I was a senior, when I graduated from seminary back in 1980, there was a a poll taken among graduating seniors from graduate school on various aspects of Christian doctrine. And it was appalling how many graduating seniors who who were getting their Masters of Divinity degree from seminary, or six seminaries, how many of them did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And you may say, well, that's a shame. Yeah, it's a shame because these guys were going out and starting pastoring churches and they were spreading their poisonous, their false doctrine to the people that they were teaching and preaching and mentoring in those churches. Can you believe it? An individual who's put in, invested time and effort for three years in studying biblical theology only to graduate not believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, Christians can espouse false doctrine in the Christian church, absolutely in the Christian church. It's a an offense and it's a stumbling block to others when a professed Christian argues that there is no hell, that there is no hell where Satan, his demons and all who reject the Lord Jesus Christ will dwell forever, especially when Jesus warned people about the horrors of hell more than he taught on the blessedness of heaven. And yet there are multiplied hundreds if not thousands of Christians who do not believe in hell. I I know of a couple of professors in our seminaries who don't believe in hell. They believe in annihilism but they do not believe in hell. It's an offense and a stumbling block to others when a professed Christian rejects that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation even when the scripture clearly testifies that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no man can come to the Father except through Him but I know a number of individuals who profess to be Christian who believe that there are other ways and other means to get to heaven other than Jesus Christ. But let's get a little bit more practical Practical from our theological point of view. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through 32, the Apostle Paul writes to this Christian church, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let me, let me read that again, because you wasn't listening. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do you do all to the glory of God? Is that what you're about in your life today? When you look at your life, when you examine who you are and what you do, can you honestly say that you are striving to do all to the glory of God? And then he goes on to say, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't be a stumbling block to those who do not know Christ. And don't be a stumbling block to those who do know Jesus Christ. Now, in the Corinthian church, just listen. In the Corinthian church, this is a Christian church in the days of the Apostle Paul. In the Corinthian church, there was a man who was in an immoral sexual relationship with his mother-in-law with his stepmother, excuse me, with his stepmother. An immoral sexual relationship with his stepmother in the Christian church. And it wasn't a secret. Everybody knew about it. But nobody said anything about it. Nobody did anything about it. In that church, there were people who were contemptuous toward those who were weaker in the faith. They were... They wouldn't permit the weaker ones to participate in some of the higher spiritual activities of the church. And they were holding those who were weaker in the faith in contempt. In that church, though, there were those who bragged that they were more spiritual because they were disciples of Peter or of Paul or of Apollos. Well, if you weren't baptized by Apollos, huh, or if you weren't baptized and discipled by Peter, spiritual arrogance, bragging that they were more spiritual because Peter had more influence in their life, Paul had more influence in their life, Apollos had more influence in their life. In that church, there were those who had no problem, no problem with idolatry, open idolatry, tempting God, criticizing God's will for the church, preaching and teaching false doctrine, and I could go on and on and on, and on in the Christian Church. Beloved, that still exists today. That's still going on right now, this morning, in churches all across America. And in those churches and with those Christians, they have become a stumbling block. They have become a stumbling block to other Christians who are trying to grow in faith, other churches that are trying to serve the Lord in spiritual maturity, they're a hindrance to other Christians and churches, and they're a hindrance to the spiritually lost from becoming saved. And they're also a hindrance to our culture from becoming moral and ethical. Do you know why we're in the sad state of affairs that we're in in California? Do you know why? Think about it. So the word here is this. The word here is this. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you're expected. It's not optional. It's not a good suggestion. It's not a great idea. You're expected to live a life of personal, spiritual integrity. You don't stumble in sin and you don't cause others to stumble in sin. You don't ignore your spiritual flaws and you don't teach others to ignore their spiritual flaws. We are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We have ceased being citizens of the kingdom of man. We are the children of God. And we are to live as children of God. We are the spiritual sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, not sons and daughters of the flesh. We are to live for Jesus, a life that is true and not living for ourselves well how do we do this very briefly let me close this by citing two passages of scripture Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 you know it very well turn there if you will You haven't been thumbing through your Bible this morning. So let's take a look at Romans. You're in Philippians, so turn left and go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Right after the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul writes to the Roman Christians, Christians who lived in Rome under the Caesars, who were as immoral as a junkyard dog, power-hungry, power-mad, adulterous, vainglorious, arrogant, bloodthirsty. And there were Christians living under that in Rome. Paul says, I urge you, I beg you, I implore you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. How do I do that? Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've got to start thinking differently. We've got to start thinking correctly. We've got to start thinking biblically. We have accommodated the world too much in our own lives, in our own families, in our own churches. We have accommodated the sin and the self-destructiveness of the world in our own lives. Paul says, you can't let that happen. Don't let that happen. You've got to change your way of thinking. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that you may test. What the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In James chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you realize, even Christians... Even a, a Christian, man or woman, who decides to turn away from the things of God and to go back into the world is an enemy of God. Worldliness is an enemy of God. It has no place in a Christian's life. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17 through 17, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. If it's not from the Father, who's it from? You can say it Satan. It's all right to say his name. He's the enemy. Can't fight the enemy if you don't know who he is. It's not from the Father. It's from Satan. And those who are practicing those kinds of things, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, those who practice those kinds of things are practicing the will and the ways of Satan, not the will and the ways of God. The world is passing away. And here's where we lose perspective, dear friends. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So, if you're a Christian today, be a Christian who loves the Lord and others with an abundant, ever-increasing love Be a Christian who pursues in-depth knowledge of God's truth. Be a Christian who practices God's truth faithfully in your life. Be a Christian who tests and proves all things for their superior value to you and your spiritual growth to maturity. Be a Christian who has personal spiritual integrity and who lives a life that does not cause others to spiritually stumble or to be offended. And this we will do to the praise and to the honor and to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand with us. David, come and lead us in a song. I'm so glad. You, friends, for being here in church today. I pray God's blessings upon you as we leave the house and go out into the field because it's white unto harvest. Father, bless us as we go, that as we go, we may share Jesus Christ with all those whom you put in our pathway. To his honor and to his glory, I pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you and have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved.